I wonder what the most extravagant declaration of love is that you've ever heard of. Maybe someone proposing marriage by skywriting, will you marry me? Or a big banner on the side of the road. Or maybe in front of a huge crowd at a baseball game or a cricket match. I always think that's risky uh, in case the other person says no. Uh, or maybe an elaborate trail of clues with expensive gifts along the way, finishing at a beautiful uh, out lookout and then a romantic proposal. That's a big declaration of love. Uh, Mark Glanville uh, is, uh, used to be the minister of Tregea Presbyterian Church and uh, he told me once of the story of his proposal to his Canadian wife Erin and that's the most extravagant declaration of love that I have heard of. Let me tell you about it. Uh, Mark went to Canada to spend time with Erin and then uh, the plan was to propose. That was fairly extravagant on its own, I guess, to travel all the way to Canada. Uh, He took uh, Erin's brothers, uh, three brothers, out bushwalking uh, for the day and their job was to scout for the perfect location Uh, and they spent all day looking. Uh, He wanted this extravagant declaration of love to be the perfect one. Uh, a few days later, on that special day, Mark and Erin had lunch at a lovely restaurant on the edge of the forest. Then they went walking through the forest. Uh, they came to a clearing. Erin could hear some violins playing. She walked into the clearing and Mark had organised a picnic, uh, a string quartet featuring Erin's brothers and sisters uh, playing the special song uh, that they loved. And at that point, Mark proposed and uh, he tells me everyone started crying. That's an extravagant declaration of love, isn't it? Maybe you've got a story that tops that. Uh, well, today I want to think about God's extravagant declaration of love. Uh, his declaration of love for humanity. Uh, he created the world. He made humans to look after it. Uh, he made us in a relationship with himself because he loved us. Uh, he keeps pouring his love out to humanity day after day even though we proved unworthy of it. He sends rain and sun and food. He makes promises and rescues his people day after day, century after century. But in the course of history, God had planned an even more extravagant demonstration. Through the prophet Isaiah, he promised to send a servant who would come and restore his people, his people Israel, and restore them back to God. But even that wasn't big enough, a whole nation. God had even bigger plans, a more extravagant proposal of love. Isaiah 49.6, he describes his bigger plans. He says in Isaiah 49, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. This is him speaking to his servant. It's too small a thing for you to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's plan was never to keep his love confined in just one place. Uh, His servant, uh, the Lord Jesus, would be a light for the whole world and would reach people to the very ends of the earth. That's how big God's extravagant love is. And so in the fullness of time, in keeping with his promise, he sent Jesus... Uh, who was a light, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Uh, John 3.16, well-known verse, we hear that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that anyone 
who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves the whole world, a world who had rejected him and he loves it to the extent that he would send his only son so that they might have life through him. He sent his son. Uh, Jesus lived an extraordinary life. He reflected God's kingdom and then according to God's plan he was killed and resurrected all part of God's extravagant declaration of love. But so far in the story, only having an impact for a small number of Jews. Hardly all that God had promised. But we read this morning, uh, or read just then from Acts, and as we take up the story at the start of the book of Acts, Jesus is about to return to the Father and he promises the Holy Spirit to the disciples, a fulfilment of God's promise to live with his people. And the disciples recognise that this is going to be the beginning of a new age when God's Spirit comes. And so they say in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, Lord, are you at this time, in other words, when the Holy Spirit comes, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But they fail to realise how big God's love is, how big his commitment is to, his whole, to the whole world. Now listen to Jesus' answer, Acts chapter 1 verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or date the Father has set, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yeah, you got that right, and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They'll be witnesses of Jesus, but not just in Israel, actually to the ends of the earth. They will go to the whole world. That's what God's plan is for his extravagance declaration of love. And so in a sense the book of Acts is this little uh, zip file of what God's plan looked like through the whole of history. Uh, Moving from Jerusalem actually to the ends of the earth or at least to Rome, the centre of the Gentile world. So the first nine chapters of Acts describe the first three stages of that. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And we're picking up the story in chapter 10 uh, and we Uh, are at Caesarea. It's a Roman colony to the north of Israel. There's plenty of Gentiles there Uh, and the message about God's love is going to come to this place. And we meet a Roman centurion called Cornelius. He's a Gentile uh, but he is someone who wants to know God. Uh, He's called a a God-fearer, someone who attends the Jewish synagogue and is learning. Uh, We're told he's devout, that he's generous, that he prays regularly. But that's not enough. That doesn't make you a Christian. He needs a personal introduction. And so God has a plan, a plan that involves Jesus, a plan for his salvation, but it's going to involve a matchmaker, someone to make the match between the two of them, Cornelius and the Lord Jesus. I don't know whether you've ever thought much about matchmaking people. Uh, Peter has... uh, Intentions. He'd like to be a matchmaker. He, he fancies himself as a bit of a matchmaker. I don't know if he's had any success. Have you had any success? You have. Two. That's fantastic. Uh, I want to. I told you a little earlier about Mark Lanville's proposal. Uh, people had been trying to matchmake him for years, but he was in his mid-thirties and he'd resisted all their attempts up to this point. But it was actually Mark's father and Erin's father who ended up playing matchmaker in this uh, instance. 
they knew each other professionally and as they talked about their, their single children, they decided that Mark and Aaron would be a good match. They were musical, they were academic, they were on the opposite sides of the world, which seemed to be a rather large problem. Uh, it's not normally fathers who are good at this sort of thing, but they seem to have got it right. Aaron's father, Mike, would come regularly out to Australia and run in-service training at Mark's father, uh, George's school. And uh, one time Mike brought Erin along with him and uh, Erin and Mike were introduced and the rest they say is history. They got married and now they're living in Canada with a couple of kids. Uh, But it took matchmakers to bring the two of them together. And that's the same with Cornelius. He wanted to know God. God loved him. Uh, And his plan was to use a matchmaker, to use Peter to introduce Cornelius to Jesus. And that's what we've got here in Acts chapter 10. And at every point we can see that it's God who's uh, making the initiative. Acts chapter 10, we take it up in verse 3. An angel appears to Cornelius and tells him that his prayers and his gifts to the poor have actually been noticed by God. And that uh, Cornelius is to send a messenger to bring someone called Simon Peter from Joppa, 100 k's away. That's all the messenger has to do, bring Peter. But it's Peter who will provide the rest of God's message. It's going to be Peter who will be the matchmaker to introduce Cornelius to Jesus. And in a sense, that's your job as well. Your job is to be a matchmaker. Your job is to introduce people to Jesus. It may be your best friends that you're introducing to Jesus, but it may be people that you're not really friends with. But that's okay because you're introducing them to Jesus, the one who will be their best friend and someone much more than just a best friend, of course. And as we keep working through the rest of this matchmaking story in chapter 10, we see all sorts of things about how God's plan works itself out. And the first thing we notice is one, uh, something we've already noticed and that is one nation is not enough for God's plans. We've seen how he works in Israel and now the boundaries are widening to the Gentile world. It's great news for Cornelius, the first Gentile, and it's great news for us as well, who are Gentiles. The second thing we learn about God's plan, his declaration of love, is that it's always God's initiative. This chapter is full of how God is at work. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was someone who prayed, who did good things, but despite all of that, it still took God to send an angel to make the introduction. Salvation always begins with God, whether it was Cornelius then or whether it's you and I today. On our own, we can never seek God. We can never understand our need for him or our sin or how to be saved. Most of the time it won't involve an angel, but it will always be God through his spirit who opens our eyes, shows us our sin and leads us to repentance and faith. So that's the second lesson, the second thing we learn. The third thing we learn about salvation here is that good works are not enough. If there was going to be anyone who could be saved by what they did, from the description, Cornelius would be it, wouldn't it? He'd be the one. It's a bit of a shock, I think, that good works are not what saves you for most people. If you ask them around Ashfield today, if you ask them a question like, how do you get to heaven or how can you be saved? 
I think most people would say something like, well, do good things. Uh, Be better than most people. 51% should get you in, they would say. But that's not what we find here, is it? Cornelius and his whole family are devout, they're religious, they prayed, uh, they donate money to the poor. Down in verse 22, we're told that uh, he's a righteous man and respected by the Jewish people and God had noticed him. Surely he would be at the front of the queue to be saved by what he did. But that wasn't enough. It would take something else to be joined to Jesus, to discover Jesus. And that's the thing, that none of us can earn our way to God. Human religion is always trying to do that, to to build a bridge upwards and to meet God. But Christianity is unique in the sense that it is God is the only one who can bridge the gap, who can build a way down. It's got to be God who takes the initiative. Third, good works are not enough to save someone. The fourth thing we see is that an angel's voice, that's not enough to save either, which is perhaps surprising. I think if you and I were writing the narrative, we would think that would be the perfect way for Cornelius to be saved. Send an angel. He can deliver this amazing message and Cornelius is sure to be saved. But that's not the way it worked. All that the angel did was to say, go and get Peter and he will deliver the message. And that's actually the normal way that God chooses for people to be saved today, isn't it? Uh, Obedient, normal Christians telling others, people they care about, the news about Jesus, just using normal words, in normal situations, in normal conversations. That's the way the Franklin Graham rally works. Uh, When ordinary Christians, normal members of churches, pray for, talk to their friends about Jesus and then invite them along uh, so that they can hear about Jesus. Uh, The Billy Graham Association releases statistics and it says most people who come to a meeting uh, come because of a personal invitation. They don't come because they see an ad They don't come because they read about something in social media or on the TV. They come because a friend invited them. So it's up to us. Uh, We should be praying and talking uh, to our friends and family. And this may be the opportunity to invite them along to hear about Jesus. It might be something else. Uh, This might be the beginning. It might be the spur that we need uh, to get us thinking and praying. It's not very exciting, Uh, But God's preferred method is a normal person using normal words. doesn't take an angel. Well, the fifth thing we learn about salvation is that externals don't count. Uh, From verse 9, Cornelius' servants are on their way to Peter's house. Peter is praying, he's waiting for lunch to be cooked and uh, while he does, he he sees a vision. Uh, A big parachute full of unclean animals comes down out of heaven. It's got all the sorts of food that Jews couldn't eat that were unclean. Pigs, snakes, lobsters, eels, vultures, bats, lizards. There are a whole list of them in Leviticus. And this comes down out of heaven and in verse 13, Peter gets the command, Peter, there's lunch. Get up and eat. 
It's like one of those challenges that uh, you see on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here or on Survivor or something like that. You know, you get this tray of uh, something revolting, uh, a plate full of spiders or cockroaches and if you manage to eat it and to keep it down then then you win immunity or or you win a special prize. Well, the plate comes before Peter and like the good Jew that he was, he said, surely not, Lord, verse 14. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And a voice comes in reply, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And that same scene is repeated twice more, just in case Peter didn't get it the first time. Uh, Some dreams you wish you never woke up from, they're, they're so good, but I think Peter's probably relieved to get rid of that yucky scene. Uh, pretty relieved to wake up from that dream. Uh, He was wondering what it all meant because uh, he understood that uh, it had to mean something, there had to be some other uh, explanation for what was going on. It was more than simply what was on his plate for lunch. Uh, He's about to find out what it all means in verse 19 when Cornelius' servants arrive. While Peter was still thinking, verse 19, about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and he said to the men, remember that the men are waiting at the gate. They're not actually going in. Uh, And said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's righteous and a God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him uh, to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Now, at some point during their explanation, a penny seems to have dropped for Peter because look at what he does next. Verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. Now, prior to that, remember what he'd said about the food? Lord, I've never eaten any unclean food. Uh, Presumably, uh, he would also, prior to the vision, never have invited an unclean Gentile into his house either. And yet Peter has worked out what the vision means. That with God, those external differences, they don't matter anymore. It's not just food that God has made clean, God has made people clean. And so Peter should treat them as clean as well. You see, when God makes someone clean, it doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is or where you were born. It doesn't matter to God the language you speak or how old you are or how educated you are. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen, how much you've sinned. When God declares someone clean, they're clean. The outside doesn't matter, it's the inside that counts. That's the lesson Peter learns. And he invites the Gentiles, who used to be unclean, into the house. And then the next day they head off to see Cornelius. They arrive, Cornelius has rounded up his friends to hear what Peter has to say and Peter says, verse 28, here's his introduction, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Probably not the sentence I would pick as my introductory, my opening remarks. They say, you know, the introduction, that first sentence needs to grab people. Uh, Probably more likely to turn people off but, but notice what Peter does. He says, that's what I used to think. Uh, But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came. When it comes to salvation, external things don't count with God. He makes people clean on the inside. And Peter realises exactly that as Cornelius retells his story. Down in verse 34, Peter says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. He doesn't look at the externals. He accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what's right. So we finally come to what the message of salvation is. What is the gospel message? There are lots of things that don't matter, but here's what is important, verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That's what salvation is, being changed from enemies into friends. Peace with God, no longer enemies. And it comes through Jesus who is Lord over everything. Peter goes on, Jesus, who was anointed by God by the Holy Spirit, he did good, but then he was killed and hung on a tree, a sign of God's curse, verse 39. But then rather remaining under God's curse, he was raised by God from the dead. He was vindicated, declared innocent and victorious, proof that God approved of him. And Peter and the other apostles were witnesses of it all. And then in verse 42, we read, Peter said, he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he's the one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? We're saved, we receive peace from God when we hear the message, when we trust Jesus, when we turn from our sin and when we're forgiven. That's what salvation is. It's who it's been offered to, it's how you receive it. So what do you do with a message like that? What do you do when someone declares extravagantly their love for you as God does here? Well, let me suggest you do the same thing that Aaron did that day when Mark proposed to uh, the music of the string quartet. You say yes. You grab it with both hands and you say, I'm going to spend my life loving you back. That's what you say. When God offers life and forgiveness and love through Jesus, we should accept it. We should repent and submit to Jesus and then spend our lives returning that love by following Jesus and living his way. That's the first thing we should do with God's declaration of love. The second thing we should do is to view God's world the way God does. We should view people the way God does. Remember for God, one nation is not enough. One class is not enough. One language or age group or suburb or church or continent, that's not big enough for God's love. He loves the whole world. He wants people everywhere to recognise his love. And yet we think we're doing okay when the church is half full. When 5% of Australians come to church. Let's lift our gaze. Let's enlarge our expectation and widen our vision. Let's become educated about mission and the needs of people in other countries, churches where there's not, uh, countries where there's not one Christian church. 
but settle for nothing less than people all over the world loving God back with something like the love he offers us. Let's view people the way God does. Let's look beyond and through the sorts of externals that normally turn us off. We look at someone rich. We look at a suburb like Rose Bay and we think, oh, it's no wonder the church isn't going so well there that it's small. After all, those rich people, well, they're pretty happy. They probably don't even need God. Let's not look at people like that. Or maybe we look at some other types of people and we think they're too rough. Uh, perhaps people on drugs or alcoholics or criminals or gay people and we assume that, well, they're not going to be interested in God, they're too far, they're too far away. But let's view people the way God does. Externals count for nothing with God. Uh, We need to view them the same. The third way we respond to God's extravagant declaration of love is to proclaim Jesus, the one who brings that love, Confidently proclaim him as Lord of all. His body is not in a tomb somewhere. He's not just a moral teacher or a good example. He is Lord and Christ, alive and reigning and ruling. Uh, The conqueror of sin and death. He deserves our honour and our respect and our obedience. And so we respond to God's love by confidently proclaiming Jesus. And the final thing we do with God's extravagant love is that we should love his world extravagantly, just like he does. We should spend our lives in the service of others. We should extravagantly spend our time and our energy and our emotions on people who can't repay it. People God loves, people God gave everything to when he sent Jesus. God's extravagant love to his world was this. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the declaration of love that you've given us in Jesus. That you'd help us to accept it to trust it, to love you back in obedience and service and evangelism and prayer. Help us to see your people, your world, the way that you do so that we might do all things for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.